The scripture reading is from Exodus 24. Then the Lord said to Moses, Come up to the Lord, you and Aaron and Nadab and Abihu, and seventy of the elders of Israel. You are to worship at a distance, but Moses alone is to approach the Lord. The others must not come near, and the people may not come up with him. When Moses went and told the people all the Lord's words and laws, they responded with one voice, Everything the Lord has said we will do. Moses then wrote down everything the Lord had said. He got up early the next morning and built an altar at the foot of the mountain and set up 12 stone pillars representing the 12 tribes of Israel. Then he sent young Israelite men and they offered burnt offerings and sacrificed young bulls as fellowship offerings to the Lord. Moses took half of the blood and put it in bowls and the other half he splashed against the altar. Then he took the book of the covenant and read it to the people. They responded, we will do everything the Lord has said, we will obey. Moses then took the blood, sprinkled it on the people and said, this is the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made of you in accordance with all these words. Moses and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu and the 70 elders of Israel went up and saw the God of Israel. Under his feet was something like a pavement made of lapis lazuli, as bright blue as the sky. But God did not raise his hand against these leaders of the Israelites. They saw God, and they ate and drank. The Lord said to Moses, Come up to me on the mountain and stay here, and I will give you the tablets of stone with the law and commandments I have written for their instruction. Then Moses set out with Joshua, his assistant, and Moses went up on the mountain of God. He said to the elders, wait here for us until we come back to you. Aaron and Hur are with you, and anyone involved in a dispute can go to them. When Moses went up on the mountain, the cloud covered it, and the glory of the Lord settled on Mount Sinai. For six days the cloud covered the mountain, and on the seventh day the Lord called to Moses from within the cloud. To the Israelites the glory of the Lord looked like a consuming fire on top of the mountain. Then Moses entered the cloud as he went on up to the mountain, and he stayed on the mountain 40 days and 40 nights. Then we have a second reading from Hebrews chapter 9, verses 16 to 22. In the case of a will, it is necessary to prove the death of the one who made it, because a will is in force only when someone has died. It never takes effect while the one who made it is living. This is why even the first covenant was not put into effect without blood. When Moses had proclaimed every command of the law to all the people, he took the blood of calves together with water, scarlet wool, and branches of hyssop, and sprinkled the scroll and all the people. He said, this is the blood of the covenant, which God has commanded you to keep. In the same way, he sprinkled with the blood both the tabernacle and everything used in its ceremonies. In fact, the law requires that nearly everything be cleansed with blood, and without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. Thank you, Rebecca, for bringing Exodus 24 and uh, Hebrews 9 to us. Uh, Please do have your Bibles open uh, there as we look at this passage together on this Remembrance Sunday. Well, as we have just together as a family had that moment of remembrance, that moment of prayerful giving thanks. It is important to recognize the sacrifice of men and women, the sacrifices made especially during the two world wars of the 20th century. 
that have secured our peace, that have given us freedom, that have confronted evil. And it's interesting that uh, one of our chief retired chief of general staff of the British Army, Lord Richard Dannett, General Lord Richard Dannett, who is actually the president of SASRA as well. A committed Christian said this, in my business, asking people to risk their lives is part of my job, but doing so without giving them the chance to understand that there is life after death is something of a betrayal. It is said there are no atheists in the trenches. As terrible as war and death is, injury and bloodshed are, they are no match for the love of God for every individual. You see, Lord Dannett, uh, as a committed believer, one of the things that he felt passionately about coming towards the end of his career in the army was how the forces were treated. And, and he was one of the creators, the founders of the Armed Forces Covenant Um, This is a pledge that as a nation, we acknowledge and understand that those who have served and are serving in the armed forces and their families should be treated with fairness and respect, whether that's economically, whether that's in the society, whether that's with health care. It means that they have legal rights to get more help with things like education, family well-being, uh, with having a home, with starting a new career access to health care, even financial services. This armed forces covenant is a legally binding way of saying we care about those who have served, who have put their lives on the line. He was addressing, Lord Dannett was addressing the problems he saw with ex-military personnel, ones who have um, faced trying to come back into everyday life, having been in the forces, rebuilding their lives after active service, and sometimes with life-changing injuries. You see, that covenant, the Armed Forces Covenant, is fundamentally an act of justice and compassion. It's a covenant of help for those who are in need, who have served our country and protected our nation. And it's remarkable that as we come to Exodus 24 on this Sunday, we're drawn into the serious business of confirming not the Armed Forces Covenant, but the covenant of the Lord to his people. A covenant that also provides protection, that is also grounded in compassion. And one in which the Lord God graciously calls his rescued people to be part of. It is a binding sign of his unbreakable love and his righteousness. It requires heartfelt obedience from the people. They are signing up to say, we will live your way, God. Not just we will remember, but we will act. And so in Exodus 24, on first reading, I appreciate it probably doesn't feel immediately relevant and applicable to our lives in Manchester 2023. But the Lord in the covenant of Exodus 24 is the Lord Jesus Christ who perfectly fulfills God's laws through his sacrifice and calls us to live in his presence and by his word. So I hope as we dive into these verses, we'll take seriously that covenant that the Lord has set with us and fulfilled in Christ. And it's important as we come to this section, I want us to just look, glance over the last couple of chapters, three chapters very quickly, because in, verses, in chapters 20 to 23, 
which are set at Mount Sinai, God has given Israel his law. Israel was rescued from Egypt. It was common practice in that time uh, amongst nations when a more powerful nation had conquered a smaller nation to enter into what was called a vassal covenant. The conquered nation agreed to serve the powerful one. And that usually meant by giving money, by giving resources, people, um, each year in, in, in return for peace and protection. Now, God's covenant acts differently. He's not an oppressor, but a liberator. He has freely rescued Israel and has promised to protect and provide for her, as we've seen in the chapters uh, since that rescue. So in chapter 20, verse 2, God's laws which are given, start by reminding the people how he saved them. And in response, he tells them what it means to accept um, him as their God. He has the right to tell them not to serve other gods, not to make idols, not to dishonor his name, not to murder, to steal, or to break any of his other commandments. And then from chapters 21 through to 23, 33, we're given the book of covenant, as it's referred to in the passage we had read in verse 7. This book of covenant, what God spoke to Moses and Moses wrote down. And the topics, as you read through them, are very diverse and comprehensive. There's laws about the household, laws about capital offenses, laws about injuries to people and animals of protection of property, of finance and business in chapter 22, of sexual malpractice, of capital offences in religion, of humane concern. Interestingly, if you just glance at uh, chapter 22 and verse 22, you'll read there, do not take advantage of, sorry, in in verse 21, do not ill-treat or oppress a foreigner, for you were foreigners in Egypt. Do not take advantage of the widow or the fatherless. And then again in uh, chapter 23, verse 9, do not oppress a foreigner. You yourselves know how it feels to be foreigners because you were foreigners in Egypt. Can you see how clearly written it is? Not just reflections of God's character, but also because of their experience oppressed by a powerful nation. Don't forget that and live differently because of your experience. Treat the foreigner with grace. Welcome them. All of these laws show something of what it means to love God and love our neighbours. Every area of life here belongs to God. Civic, religious, personal, it's all his arena. His principles, his rules and ideals are for the whole of life. Now, I appreciate, as I say that, that can be immensely uncomfortable and challenging, especially for people who don't know God, who who don't read the Bible closely. Uh, Queen Victoria's first prime minister, a guy called Lord Melbourne, is reported to have said, if religion is going to invade a person's private life, things have come to a pretty pass. This is a guy who didn't want it encroaching, even though he was interested in theology and stuff like that. It was arm's length. And what's clear is the book of the covenant won't allow that. And when Jesus gave his sermon on the mount, he shows that the law of God has to go even deeper, deeper into our hearts, not just ink on a scroll. It requires more. 
So when we receive the forgiveness and rescue that God alone gives, we have a duty to bring all of our life under the scrutiny of his word, to live by his word, as his word directs. And this is what the Bible means by covenant. It's a sacred relationship. It's a relationship established and fulfilled by God. It's one in which God belongs to his people, and his people are to show their love to him doing what he says. And that is the place of blessing. But in order for a covenant to be established, it needs to be confirmed. And that's what takes place here in chapter 24. And the first thing that we see as we just walk through this passage is that, again, representatives are needed. This isn't the first time this has happened. Then the Lord said to Moses in verse 1, eyes down if you're following the text, come up to the Lord, you and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, that's um, Aaron's two eldest sons who were part of the priestly clan, and 70 of the elders of Israel. You are, are to worship at a distance. But Moses alone is to approach the Lord. The others must not come near and the people may not come up with him. Well, why does Moses need to go up to the Lord? Because, as we've seen before, we need a mediator. Yes, Moses was accompanied by Aaron. He had his two older sons along and the 70 elders representing the whole of Israel. But even they couldn't go as close as Moses was allowed. You see, God's people always need representation. We can't just wander into God's presence. And ultimately, his son Jesus Christ is our perfect mediator. God is holy. He's beyond our reach. Even though on Mount Sinai, God graciously comes down to meet with his people, there's still a gulf between them. He's superior. We're inferior. And yet, he invites us to worship. He also instructs how that worship is to happen. It's not a negotiation. We can't leave him on hold, as it were, as we search around for other deals. Saying, I'll get back to you when it is convenient, Lord. Now, remember, in the New Testament, remember that encounter Jesus had with the rich young man, as he's described in Mark chapter 10. Mark 10, 17 to 22. Here's a guy looking for reassurance that he had eternal life. And like a tick box checklist, he goes through. He hadn't murdered. He hadn't done adultery. He hasn't stolen anything. He hasn't given false testimony. I haven't defrauded or dishonored my parents. So the list goes on in the conversation. He's ticking off the 10. However, when it came to the love of his life, the Lord took second place over his wealth. And what's amazing is Mark tells us Jesus knew this and loved him. And still the man went away sad. He wasn't going to worship on God's terms. The challenge of give up your wealth, love me first, love me more, was way too much. That's the deal breaker. But interestingly, Jesus doesn't run after him to renegotiate. Tell you what, why don't we go for three days a week, and if you just bankroll my mission to the tune of whatever, 10,000 denarii or whatever you can spare, we'll, we'll do it that way. No. Jesus' love wasn't enough for him. But he does not negotiate. You see, worship is all or nothing, and it is on God's terms. The whole of life belongs to him. 
And we'll look next week at how that worship is distorted when we kick God out and we go for substitutes. But a response is required. Here in verses 3 to 4. So let's look at that. When Moses went and told the people all the Lord's words and laws, they responded with one voice, everything the Lord has said we will do. Moses then wrote down everything the Lord had said. So Moses, having returned from his time with the Lord, that what we've just had in chapters 20 through to 23, receiving all the commands, declares them to the people, and they respond with a comprehensive, yes, we're in, everything. And it echoes with that earlier answer back in chapter 19, verse 8. And you probably notice they make the same positive response the next day in verse 7 of chapter 24. If you're following the text closely, after the second reading of the book of Covenant, three times we will, with one voice, this is an open, unified, heartfelt, considered response. Not an off-the-cuff, yeah, yeah, whatever, meh, maybe. No, this is a yes, we will. I love the part in the marriage service where the bride and groom make their declarations. That's different to the, the vows, comes before that. And the words go, will you take uh, Sarah to be your wife? Will you love her, comfort her, honor and protect her, as the minister's saying this to the, the groom, and forsaking all others, be faithful to her as long as you both shall live? And they answer, I will. And then, after the bride has been asked the same questions, the congregation, the family and friends, are asked this question, will you, the family and friends of this husband and wife, support and uphold them in their marriage now and in the years to come? And it's, we will. In all the marriages that I've taken over 19 years, I've never heard a, mm, maybe. <laughs> you know, sometimes we've had to do it again just to give it a bit of a punch, you know. Come on, guys. You're here today. You're going to stick with these guys. We will. What makes the Israelite profession of commitment so tragic here, though, is what happens over the 40 days when Moses is up on Sinai receiving yet more of the Lord's law. Again, we'll look at this next week. You see, it sort of sums up what Jesus said. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. There's a yes, we will. But how can we deliver on it? We can't. We'll fall short. And the written word of God's law will convict them. Verse 4a. Moses wrote down everything the Lord had said. This is not changing. Everything from chapter 20 to 23 authoritatively written down as a treaty that could not be changed. The Israelites did not simply rely on oral tradition, but they wrote things down. They had the word of God written. And whenever God said something important, they put it in writing so that it would never be forgotten, which is why we still have these words today. Isn't that amazing? That God has preserved this word for us so that we might hear him, even though we're nowhere near Sinai. And God continues to correct, to convict and teach us through them so that we can share something of the psalmist joy and prayer, which I hope is your heartfelt response. Just hear these uh, words of praise from Psalm 119. Verse 130, the unfolding of your words gives light. 
It gives understanding to the simple. Direct my footsteps according to your word and let no sin rule over me. Redeem me from human oppression that I may obey your precepts. Look those words up later. Psalm 119, verse 130, and then I just jump to 133. Because in 133, you've got the response, direct my footsteps according to your word. Redeem me from human oppression. There's an interesting thing there. You will always be under one law or another. There will always be a word controlling your life. It's whether it leads to life or crushes you with oppression. And God's words give light. They bring understanding. They take the simple and make them wise. Then we come to a very interesting part in this encounter, this covenant confirmation of sacrifices that are made and blood sprinkled. So let's have a look at verses 4b through to 8. This next part of the confirming the covenant is a solemn ceremony. Moses sets up these 12 pillars of undressed stones representing the 12 tribes of Israel. He builds an altar of undressed stones, which is significantly at the foot of the mountain. That is the boundary fence where God has told the people they cannot go past. The altar is a means of access to God's presence. What is taking place at Mount Sinai is to be replicated in the design of the tabernacle. As we see with those instructions, it's like the tabernacle becomes the mountain. There's a place and a way to go to God. These young Israelites are acting in a priestly role, gathering the animals and preparing the sacrifices. I came across this illustration, which I think in some way captures, tries to capture what's going on here. Israel gathered there around this, watching Moses with the sacrifices taking place. The burnt offering involved an entire animal, a bull, consumed by fire. We're told that later in Leviticus 1, as these laws, these sacrifices are explained. Nothing was left. The whole offering is given up to God. It's a costly sacrifice. It's one that represents full atonement, full forgiveness of sin, and also total dedication to God. It wasn't just let's, let's cook a cow for the sake of it. There's meaning here. It's forgiveness. It's wholly dedicated. The inference is that the worshiper who's represented by this sacrifice is giving themselves, is recognizing their need of forgiveness, but also their dedication to the Lord. And then the fellowship offerings that are celebrated, they, they mark the peace, the reconciliation in the relationship between the worshiper and creator. The offering was not cremated like the burnt offering. It was more of a barbecue. It was a cookout. It was grilled until it was tender, and then it was eaten. It was served as dinner. That's what's going on. The priests, the worshippers, people would eat the, the fellowship offering together in the presence of God. It was a meal. It was a meal enjoyed in God's presence. But before any of this could be done, the blood had to be drained. The blood from the fellowship offerings was carefully collected in these large bowls, and then it was sprinkled. And this was important, the most important part of the ceremony. Moses took half the blood, sprinkled it on the wall, 
altar. And then after reading the book of the covenant again, you've had the sacrifices, hear God's word, make your response. What happens? He takes the other half and sprinkles it on the people. Some on the altar, some on the people. But why does he do this? Is this just really primitive, superstitious, barbaric stuff going on? What's the purpose to serve with splattering people with blood? Well, the blood shows here the severity of the covenant. It is a matter of life and death. In the ancient world, a covenant typically was sealed in blood to show what would happen if either party failed to comply. This was the symbolism in Genesis 15 when God made his covenant with Abraham. And at the same time, the blood was a sign of God's mercy. God was simply showing his people what would happen if they failed. It wasn't that he was just saying, look, if you don't live up to this, it's going to be your blood on your hands. He was also showing that there's a way for them to remain with him in fellowship, in favor, even when they sinned. So first, Moses sprinkles the blood on the altar of God, which showed the people's sins are forgiven. A bloody altar always signifies the forgiveness of sin. Atonement's been made. God has accepted a sacrifice as payment for sin. This blood was also a propitiation. That word sounds long. It means quite simply what the Bible teaches is that it turned away God's righteous anger. Just as on the night of the Passover, God's judgment was turned away by the substitute blood of a lamb spread on the doorposts, God's anger is turned away at our sin. And then the blood was sprinkled on the people, showing that God had accepted their sacrifice. They were now included in the covenant through the forgiveness of their sins. The blood and all its benefits, that favor, that peace with God, is applied to the people. You can't miss it. Because it's been thrown at you. It's on your clothes. It's on your face. Can you see how real and visceral that is? And the writer of Hebrews explains the ceremony. That's why we had that second reading. In that way. That is how the New Testament applies this. In chapter 9, verse 20 of Hebrews, quoting Exodus 24, verse 8. You can see that in the footnote in your New Testament if you look down on the page at Hebrews 9. I've put the verse up here. Moses said, this is the blood of the covenant which God has commanded you to keep. And then in verse 22, in fact, the law requires that nearly everything be cleansed with blood and without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. God's relationship with his people was maintained on the basis of a sacrifice. This is exactly what Jesus provided on the cross. But now he, Jesus, has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to do away with sin. By what? By the sacrifice of himself. And God made a covenant with us in Christ, in Christ's blood. Just as Moses sprinkled blood on the altar, so Christ shed his blood on the cross. Atonement was made, our sins forgiven. And therefore, the cross is where we have to go to find salvation and allows us into God's presence for him to dwell with us. 
Now, we can't help but today, with everything going on in the news as well, hearing those words, bloodshed, and thinking of the agonizing conflicts and wars taking place around the world at the moment. There are those that are in the news and up front in our faces at the moment, and then there's loads that are going on quietly which we don't know about, where lives are lost and blood is shed. And even how profoundly there'll be lives that have been sacrificed to serve someone else over the last few weeks. We don't know their names. Painfully giving their lives to let someone else live somehow, some way. Precious blood shed. It won't be forgotten by God, but it won't save. The blood shed by his son on the cross is the only powerful means of being given life everlasting, of the yes, you're forgiven, being written over us and upon us. As the writer to the Hebrew goes on, you have come to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood. If you're a Christian here, do you really know that? Do you live your lives on that belief, on that concrete ground that Christ's blood shed, sprinkled, means your guilt has been cleansed. You are forgiven. You are okay with God, your creator. Because if you do, that changes everything. And look at what flows out of that access. Verses 9 to 11. This is the extraordinary overflow of God's grace. Moses and the leaders get to meet and eat with God. Like that is off the charts. Meeting and eating with the Lord. Now, last Sunday evening, I went to see some bands that none of you will know, which is a great shame, but it was at Gorilla in a really small club, and they were phenomenal, Tiger Cub and James and the Cold Gun. And um, what's interesting is, because it's a small gig and these are up-and-coming bands, they come out and meet you after. So, you know, the singer's saying, right, afterwards, once we've put our guitars down and stuff, we'll be around to have a chat. They come off the mountain, as it were, of the stage... And meet with just the hoi polloi like us. Wow. You know, and they sign stuff and they tell you about their bass guitar rack and their pedals and things like this. It's amazing. You feel like you're really in it. You're part of it. How much more? How much more here at Sinai, even though there's still distance? Israel represented get to see and be with God. You know, even the language here is trying to, how do you encapsulate an experience like that? You know, it's kind of, we went up, but it's lapilazuli. You go, what color is that? It's blue, you know? And it was like a pavement. What, like a pavement we walk on? No, well, you know, sort of like a screeny thing, but blue. And we saw his feet. What? You saw his feet, you know? Yeah, because it's just so mind-blowingly out there. 
How are you supposed to describe an encounter with your creator? And you can't see the creator because we will die. And yet, we've done this ceremony, all God's told us to do, so that we can see something of him. And you know what? We ate. We ate in his presence. Wow. This is the God of the Bible who wants to know us. And there they were eating their packed lunch of roasted ox together, recognizing the peace that had been granted to them. And you know what? In this meal, as you trace it through the scriptures, you just see time and time again this promise coming out. Isaiah 25, you will come up to my mountain, all the peoples of the nations. And you know what? Death's going to be eaten up. And we're going to have a feast of the finest meats and wine on the Lord's mountain. And what do we see Jesus doing when he's feeding the 5,000 on a mountain? With his people. And then at the end of scripture, Revelation 19, the marriage supper of the Lamb. The fulfillment of Isaiah's vision. The fulfillment of what's going on here in Sinai. Because all the nations are there who believe in Christ. Enjoying this feast, this supper. We eat in joyful expectation of seeing our Savior's face to face. When we take the Lord's Supper, that is what we're doing. We're saying this is, this is a down payment. This is not the real deal. This is looking forward, anticipating what is to come face to face with God, enjoying peace, feasting together. And this is how John describes it. The mountain experience made real. Made real for all who will come to the word, who became flesh and made his dwelling among us, who tabernacled that word dwelling, tabernacled. He's right there in the heart of it. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only son who came from the father full of grace and truth. Isn't it amazing that this, this experience in Exodus 24 lives today because Christ is risen and calls us to himself. If you're a believer here, you will in our church at different points take a little bit of bread, a wafer, and a little bit of grape juice and go, why are we drinking these things that are so small and eating this stuff? But you will also go, this is for me. This is Christ. This is in remembrance of what he's done. As I eat this and drink this, I'm spiritually feeding on him. I'm in a covenant of fellowship, a pledge that's been given to me, given to me of his forgiveness, of his love, of his presence every day. And as I take these and eat these, I'm saying I'm going to live your way, not in my strength. For the praise of your name, Father, Son and Spirit. We're giving our lives in service of the, his kingdom. And in a few moments' time, after we've sung a song of response, 
in this giving season, we're going to be passing around baskets so that those who have felt led to and prayed about this will be making pledges. Pledges that are costly. Pledges that feel impossible maybe to deliver on. Pledges that say in some small way, here, out of all you've given me, Lord, I want to continue to live my life in your presence. And here's some way of just gratefully saying, I'm going to contribute to your mission at this time, in this place, with this church. It's another way in which we're saying, that covenant you've given to us, we're going to live it out. We're serious about it. We're responding in gratitude for all the benefits of the salvation we have in Jesus Christ. I'm not trying to pay you off, Lord. I'm not trying to uh, show that I'm really uh, great in this church or something like that. It's another way of saying, I just want to play my part in your kingdom. I want to do what I can to help people realize the mountain has come down to us in Jesus Christ and that his saving love is the saving love they need, just as we heard from those ex-soldiers who are now spending their lives sharing Christ's gospel with military people. Because his saving love makes the most sense. It gives us life. Let's pray. Father, thank you. You are a Lord who is over our lives. The Lord who invites us to come and worship and be with you. Lord Jesus, thank you that your blood has cleansed the vilest of sinners, the guiltiest consciences. That your righteousness is counted to us. And that Lord, as we look at the Lord Jesus, risen and glorified, we should be laid low. And yet he reaches out to us and says, don't be afraid. I am with you always. Father, help us here at Grace Church in some way, by your power, to live out something of this glory to make your good news, your saving love known to more people here in Manchester. Amen.